Thank you for showing up in the place where we come together and sit in circle and share the stories that inspire us. Get ready to enjoy this next powerful journey outdoors in nature. Hello, adventurous soul. If you have been drawn towards this episode, then I say trust it. Full disclosure, it goes for about three times as long as any of the other yarns that I have had with previous adventurers. And I'm not going to apologize for it because I had so much fun sitting with Eleanor and learning from her and being inspired by her. I just got so excited. So if you need to break it down into a few episodes, then you do you. You do you, boo. And I invite you to stay open because we do, this really felt like an episode for me where we were journeying the, where the different rivers come in and join up and where it heads out to the ocean. So We journey this adventure that she goes on from paddling from California to Hawaii in the open sea with two almost near strangers to journeying the body part of that, the mind part of that, and also journeying the soul part of that. It's a treat for all of them. And within that, I want to give you a heads up that we do get quite intimate and vulnerable in this conversation. So if you have sensitivity around things like pizza butt uh, or sexual abuse, then know that that is something we go into. So just support yourself during that. I have chosen to not only leave that component in this podcast, but also encourage it because I believe that there's a level of intimacy that Eleanor invited into this conversation and strength. And I want to support that because I believe just like there's intimacy that grows when you go on a journey with someone, whether that be hiking a mountain, whether that be climbing a cliff face and you have to poo into a tube, whether that be going on a paddling journey and not feeling like you can go the whole way. There's a level of intimacy that we get from these journeys, especially when we share them with others that often you don't get in your day-to-day life. So... I want this also to be a platform where all of you is welcome. So I really honour and thank and celebrate Eleanor for going there, not only physically on this adventure, but mentally and spiritually. And I encourage you to stay open and take from it what serves you. And hopefully you just enjoy the ride. Hi there. Thanks for joining us again for another beautiful story from a beautiful human for you to learn off and be inspired by. And today I actually have someone, it feels special for me because uh, this person actually found the podcast, listened to the podcast, really liked the podcast, reached out and asked to be on the podcast, which is basically my dream. Like that's why I say at the end of them all, like, hey, if you want to be on it, please reach out. And somebody actually did it. And now I'm in their living room and we're doing it. So with that, um, with that, 
without spoiling anything else that's about to happen, I would love you guys to meet Eleanor. Eleanor, I would love you to introduce yourself. And can you tell us how old you are and what stage of life you feel like you're in at the moment, please? Oh, I love that question. And I don't quite know how to answer it. I'm 31 years old. My body is 31 years old. Um, I feel like I guess I'm in a bit of a middle stage of life. I got engaged earlier this year. Mm. We're going to get married later in the year, which both really excites me and kind of scares me because I swear to God, I'm still only like 15 and I shouldn't be allowed to be getting married yet. Um, so yeah, like kind of a semi-stable but still feeling very adventurous phase of life. Is that a phase? Let's say it's a phase. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> you seem happy with it, so that's yeah. the most important bit. Making it up as I go along, that's the phase, cool. I think. <laughs> Isn't that life? Yeah, <laughs> That's the much. life phase. And I would love to know what like lights you up, what excites you? Uh, I think what lights me up is you know is having having peace finding peace and always the outdoors just Mm. any opportunity to be totally surrounded and immersed by nature like away from cars away from roads away from houses away from any buildings Mm -hmm. like just any environment like that every single time always been like that I no, not really. Like I think I maybe wanted to be like that as a kid and a teenager and we did do some outdoorsy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um but really it's only been probably from my mid twenties on that I really got into adventure and the outdoors. So I'm almost feel sad that I already lost well not that it was that many years, but it's just like my God, there's just every moment is so precious that yeah. I almost feel like I arrived pretty late to it in life in a sense. And how did you get into it then in your mid twenties? So I moved to England and it was Christmas Day. I had no friends, no family, like no one over there. And I'd found this book, which was called Cycling Home from Siberia. So on Christmas Day, I sat there and ate chips and drank cider and read this book from cover to cover. Um, And these guys, they flew over to Siberia and cycled all the way home to England. And I just thought, I didn't didn't know you were allowed to do that. Mm. Like, where was that lesson in school that said, hey, did you know that you're allowed to fly halfway around the world and then cycle all the way back home? Like, that's a thing that you can do. And I just felt like the world had been keeping this secret from me. (laughs) Or it was like this, I almost feel like there was this invisible door that had been next to me the whole time. But it took reading that book for me to be able to see that it was there mm. and sort of like step into it. So, yeah, it was through yeah books and documentaries and stuff like that have been huge. Wow. That's, yeah, I love that. It's so true. Like I think of, I wasn't introduced, like my parents didn't do that kind of thing and therefore, and they didn't really have that many friends and stuff around them. So I didn't get that kind of influence. So, yeah. and I even do that now with things where I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize you could do that yeah and that's so true about the outdoors because I guess there's this kind of well in Australia it's where you get your four-wheel drive you pimp it out you go driving on the beach you drink beers you have a fire and then you can also hike if you want to but then it's like really lightweight hiking and I know it seems a bit tweety 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 sometimes yeah yeah yeah. you know but it just yeah the crazy creative ways that people do it which yeah I've definitely come from like reading people's books so you're just like oh like I love Liz Clark and her book Swell have you read that no I haven't but I will put it on my list my ever growing list oh man that woman is so inspiring but yeah just to see how other people are living and for that to be a permission piece for them to be like oh I can do that too totally which I guess is what the whole podcast is about which is kind of cool exactly Um, and on that I wonder what you're going to give us permission to do I'm I'm enthralled I would love to hear of one I'm sure you have many of stories of a powerful journey that you have had in nature 
So the power, the the biggest, most powerful journey. Dun dun dun. <laughs> was um so it was back in 2018, and with six weeks' notice, I flew out to California to meet two other women who I'd never met in person before. That I'd only met, you know, internet strangers in in essence. Um, to row a boat from California to Hawaii. And uh, I had never been in the open ocean before, had no ocean rowing experience. Uh, Not that anybody, you know, you ask any ocean rower and nobody ever has ocean rowing experience before you go ocean rowing. So it's like a bit of a catch-22, like in and of itself. Um, So, yeah, went went and flew out there. We spent 62 days at sea and we had Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) I feel like the fact... (laughs) Let's just go back a second. So you... How did you know these women? I so I watched again so doc, watch watch this documentary it's yes. like all good things start with like books and documentaries so, so you know true. it's like be careful what you read and watch because you know so we can't be true. held responsible for what things happen afterwards yeah. I watched the documentary Losing Sight of Shore okay. uh, four British women they rode the entire way across the Pacific Ocean in like three separate like in three separate legs and immediately afterwards I just googled I I like ocean that. rowing cruise yeah, yeah it was on it was on Netflix okay. um, they've taken it down now I don't know if it's popped up on another streaming platform but it is it, yeah is is available online in various places I'm sure and um so I just jumped online and googled ocean rowing crews Uh and I found one and I said hi my name's Eleanor can I please join your ocean rowing crew uh okay thanks bye and just sent this email before I sort of lost my nerve Uh really having no business whatsoever um you know putting my name forward but I was like hey you know I'll just give it a whirl and they emailed me back and they said that their crew was full but that they would put me on the reserve list uh, however, I didn't believe them yeah. that that was actually a thing. And I just thought that they were really rejecting me okay. in a kind way. And lo and behold, their third crew member, uh, she dropped out. Yeah, like six weeks before the race started. And, you know, they'd been prepping for this journey for like 18 months. So Did pretty last minute. to prep at all? Like being, you know, even the, um, the understudy usually has to know all the lines and has to know well, all of that. Yeah, funny you should ask. So I, I emailed Kaz back um, after she, she said, oh, we'll put you on the reserve list. And I did, you know, follow up and said, oh, hey, is there anything in particular I should be across, anything that I should be doing? And we've talked about this afterwards and laughed about it, that she never replied to that email. Oh. So hence why I just sort of forgot about it because I was like, you know, if they really wanted yeah. me to do stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, she was just insanely busy. And, of course, at that stage they didn't really think that anybody was going to drop out. So, anyway, we've laughed about that since. And, um, yeah, so I got, I, got the, I got the call up. So six weeks. Okay, so you've reached out. So you don't know these women from a bar of soap. Nope. They're you in just, England and li- I'm in Australia. You just literally just Googled it in there. It could have popped up anywhere and you would have just sent them an email. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and so now they're like, hey, turns out we want you on board. You have six weeks. What What are you doing in your life at that point? That Did you just like blow everything up just so you could go to be there? Or did you not have anything going on at the time? Uh, no, I had, I had a fair few attachments at the time. So I had started a business in, um, so I was in Bundaberg in Queensland. So like four hours north of Brisbane uh, called The Generator. So it was an innovation hub. Uh, so that had been running for about 18 months at that point. So, but I was still pretty brand new to, to business um, and really sort of struggling with, with running it, to be totally honest as well. It was just as is, you know, as, as are most things I think that we take on half the time, you have no idea what you're in for until you're right in the middle of it. Oh, and yeah. it was very true for that. 
And uh, so I sort of just put it on hold. My partner, Kat, she sort of put her hand up to help, you know, run the business while I was gone and sort of keep things running. So what, what a legend. What does the do? So we were running like, you know, events and programs basically for, you know, people who were starting businesses, like really targeted towards first time founders and particularly like younger people in that community as well because okay. it was sort of an uh, – you know, a more experienced like business community, you know, like you have your chambers of commerce in regional areas and things like that. Um, But we really wanted to create something that was, you know, yeah, really targeted more towards that younger demographic. Um, And, you know, it was a co-working space. So yeah, we were renting out space and meeting rooms and running events and, and yeah, programming and things like that. Okay. But very inside. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I was a physiotherapist, you know, originally, and then I changed tack you know, significantly to start that business, which yeah. again, I probably really had, you know, there was, I had no experience. Reflection. Yeah, there was, I really didn't have the experience to do that either. Um, but hey, you figure it out as you're going along. I'm, I'm sensing a bit of a pattern from yep. you here already. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay. So you did actually have, so you've got the partner, you've got the house, you've got the business, you've got it all there in Bundy. And then you get this like, hey, we do actually want you on board. Were you instantly like, yep, I'm doing it? Or were you like, uh, no? It was, I remember getting the email. It was like 11.30 at night. It was Good Friday. And for some weird reason at 11.30 at night on Good Friday, I decided to check my emails. You're because probably it's high like, on chocolate still. Probably. <laughs> well, I didn't have the chocolate yet, so no, I okay. couldn't. <laughs> um, and then it was, it was, it was like a full body yes, mm-hmm. but it was a, it was a full body yes. It was a holy fuck. I have no idea how. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. But it was a full body yes. Yeah. Um. So it was just sort of following that and going the same with everything else. Like I'll figure this out one step at a time as well. And um, where did you get that? Where do you get that attitude from? Oh, I'll say yes and figure it out. Like were, were your parents like that, or did you have an influential person, or? I think that's a good question. I've never really thought about I th- like I think it sort of just developed over time. Um you know there were there was certainly like an influential teacher at school, Mr. Archidiacono is his name, so he was our Italian teacher. So we did like maths and science in Italian from like year 8 and like from the very first lesson he taught us entirely in Italian and we were like this is never going to work like you can't just turn up and teach people entirely in Italian and have them understand uh-huh. um but he did it and he like made it work so wow. i think he sort of originally helped like initiate that mm. you know belief and the mindset and the figuring out things as you go along but it has only become reinforced as time has gone on and then now I'm probably much stronger in my conviction of you know the ability to be able to you know figure it out I just think it's something that we get really wrong in our society as well that you know we teach kids at school and through university it's like okay well you're going to study all of this content and then we'll test you on it like when you're ready Mm. um and I just don't think that it actually applies in everyday life Mm -hmm. that much because I think so much of the time you only figure out how to do the thing once you're in the middle of the thing that Mm -hmm. you have to do and Mm -hmm. if we were supposed to be entirely ready then we'd never do 
you know, anything totally. most of the time. So that's something that I really strongly believe that I wish more people could believe of themselves. Yeah, I spoke into that. Um, I have another podcast called Soul Body. <laughs> and one of the titles was um, learning to love the learning process. Yeah. Because it's like so much of our learning process. I feel like there's still so much shame around it where people yeah. won't give themselves permission to try because then they shame themselves, which is what has happened externally once yeah. upon a time. And so they just don't allow themselves to take that first step. And it's, it's literally bec- not because you shouldn't take the first step. It's just because this is it's just a learnt behavior yeah like the reason why you struggle to take the first step is a learnt behavior which to me is great because then that means that you can learn a different behavior mm-hmm. and have a different outcome totally so i got okay so you're a massive advocate for so you're, you're learning science and math in italian which then shows you that anything is fucking possible totally yep and you're really embracing this part of you that's like just throwing yourself in there and just you know Making it work. Hit yep. the ground running kind yep. of thing. Jump in, truly just jump in the deep end. We'll figure out, we'll learn how to swim. Not that I really recommend that in practice, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Use it metaphorically, people. That's it, metaphorically, not literally. Yeah. <laughs> and how long did they say the paddle was going to take? We were prepared to be at sea for three months. So this is even a big chunk of time. Like, was there a need to talk with your partner of like, hey, I love you, but I'm going to be away for three months. Like, was that... Yeah. Was like, super... there, were, there, were, there were lots of conversations. Well, I remember the first... As much as it was a full body, yes, it was like the first thing I committed to was, okay, well, I just need to talk to Megan Kaz, like on a video call and who knows, they might be completely insane and I might hate them. Or, you know, if I get to the end of the video, like, you know, as soon as you speak with somebody, you know, pretty quickly if you're going to, you know, or if you mildly get along. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, right, I'll do the video call. I'll see if we get along. Um, I told Kat that I, Kat, my partner, that I, you know, had gotten this email, of course. Um, but you know, we were really just waiting until I'd spoken to them for that first time because, you know, it might've died right then and there and never been a thing. Um, but then we did get along really well. So then that, that next, you know, so I call it like a decision gate because it's like, you know, when you, Mm. how do you decide to row an ocean? It's not just once. It's like, you have to decide again and again and again and again and again, like over and over and over. Um, and so then that was sort of the next decision gate, which was, you know, coming back or Kat and I then coming together and just saying, okay, how do we feel about this? Mm. And I guess I was prepared. I remember being prepared coming into that conversation to like fights the wrong word, like maybe just advocates really strongly for the fact that I wanted to, to yeah. do this and I was preparing to get some pushback. Um, but she was just immediately on board and she was like, if you need to go and do this, then she's like, I'm, I'm with you, which is you know, that characteristic and trait is one of the original things that Mm. I, you know, fell in love with her for. Mm -hmm. Um, When she, I was about to cancel a trip to Bali soon after we got together. And she was like, you have to go on that trip because I don't want you to cancel it. And then down the track, be mad at me because, (laughs) you know, so she was like, you need to do this so that you don't regret it. So she's always just been really supportive in that way and never, um, yeah, never tried to, I guess, talk me out of things that are, you know, potentially going to be difficult or challenging. So, you know, I really admire that yeah. trait in her. It sounds like you guys are securely attached. Which I is... think so. I, I believe so. I hope so. Every part of the codependency <laughs> in me is very jealous. Okay, so you've talked to them and you're like, you're still getting those yeses from your body. Yeah. You're then getting yeses from externally as well, from yeah. people who love and support you. Some external, <laughs> not okay. all the external people. Ah, were some people like, you're crazy? My my mum, uh, one of my mom. sisters, 
Um, my dad was really, he was incredibly supportive. I think that he's actually the one that I get the adventurous sort of trait from, though I don't, he's never really had the opportunity to perhaps express it in the same way that mm. I have, which, you know, is another, you know, beautiful privilege that I have perhaps being born of this generation and this mm. time and, mm. you know, lots of other factors that have nothing to do with, with me. Um, but yeah, oh, there were plenty of people who thought that I was insane. I found out afterwards there were a lot of people that thought I was going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, absolutely not everybody was supportive. Definitely some people were, but it was a really mixed bag. So that was challenging. What is it that lured you? I just wanted to find out, like, I wanted to find out if it was possible. The thing that intrigued me, like I had this, you know, deep curiosity perhaps, which was to find out, is this, is this actually possible? If I am this inexperienced, if I've never been in the open water before, I have no ocean rowing experience, no, 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 effectively zero basis whatsoever for this experience. And I wanted to find out, is it possible to, to build that, I guess, this, this fast. So that was one of the things. Um, I think at the same time, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this at the time when it was happening, but I think I was also really running away, mm. um, you know, from the struggle that was sort of like encompassing me in the business at the time, which I would have put down to the fact that starting a business is challenging, which it's true. Um, but yeah, there were lots of other complex underlying factors sort of at the time. Mm. So as much as in a sense I was running towards the adventure and towards mm. the experience and to find out what was possible, I think it was there was a duality there of running towards that yet also running away from something at the same time. But you had no idea that you were running away? Like none of that was conscious at, the, at no, that time? No, I think it was, yeah. You know, really I think it only existed on a subconscious level mm-hmm. and I can see it now quite clearly looking mm. back. But, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes when we're in the middle of something we can't... Okay. You know, we, ca- we can't, we can't get, get our words to that experience sometimes. Yeah. We haven't had that experience yet to be able to reflect on. I mean, imagine yeah. now when it happens in the future, you'd be like, hold on a second. Look, I've done wait, this, this before. This has happened before. Yeah. <laughs> I've done this before. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've then got the six weeks out, you're sorting out your life to stop and to be able to fly over to California. Like what, do you just go into like, oh shit mode for those six weeks and just like start rowing everywhere? Like what do you, just eating protein bars and rowing? Like what does, what do you do when you so like, go for yes, a swim in the I, ocean? I started getting up at like five o'clock in the morning, going to the gym and like rowing on the erg and, you know, would do like five kilometers. That felt like a long time or I'd, you know, oh, row for an cute. hour. I'd row for two hours. Yep. And I just remember, you know, sitting there thinking like, holy fuck, how am I going to, you know, if rowing on the erg is like hard for two hours because our shift pattern out there was three hours on, three hours off, three uh-huh. hours on, three hours off. And that was 24 hours a day nonstop. So, you know, it was going from never having rowed for, uh, you know, I did row for six months when I was at university, but to okay. be totally honest, we were more in it for like the drinking afterwards mm-hmm. than the actual like rowing. sports. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was much more of like a social endeavor than, a, you know, I had never been any sort of like, and I had never been an athlete. Like yeah. that is for sure. <laughs> like I always had a, I always had a crack at sport, but yeah. I was never winning any medals at school or winning any races. Like that was so not my, sure. you know, I was in it and happy to have a crack, but was never, ever close to being the best. Um, so yeah, it was sort of going from 
you know, never having rode for a full hour on an erg before to then, you know, figuring out how to row for two hours, but then still having this really deep fear about when that moment arrived when you're sitting in the boat and not only do you have to row for three hours, which I still don't think even once I'd arrived in California, I don't think I'd ever rowed for a three-hour shift before, let alone to do three hours and then have three hours off mm-hmm. and then do it for three hours again and then three hours off. So it was really looking down the barrel of a complete unknown. Mm-hmm. So I tried to prep as much as I could, but there was really no <laughs> there was really no time. What had inspired was it Mel and Taz? Did I get that right? Oh, um, Meg, Meg and Kaz, Meg and yeah. Kaz. Oh, yeah. Close, close. What close. inspired them to do it? So they knew each other. So they met through, um, you know, through the ocean rowing. Like I, I can't remember actually exactly how they recruited each other. I think Kaz had been trying to put together a crew for a while, um, and then the UK I think has the highest number. Like there's still not a lot of ocean rowers in the world. Like I think there's maybe four or five hundred people that have rowed oceans. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the ocean rowing, you know, scene over there in the UK, there's certainly more people over there than there are in Australia. Still not a lot, but um, I believe that was how they. They started, they've both got, you know, different adventure backgrounds and um, yeah, and Kaz loves ocean rowing. Like she will go again. I probably will not do another like big ocean row like that. I'll do lots of other big journeys or multi-month journeys, but I think I've ticked the ocean rowing box, whereas Kaz loves, she loves it so much. Okay, so are you building relationships with them before you get over there too? Like, are you guys talking every week? Are you? Yeah, so we had, we had, you know, yeah, I'm pretty sure we had weekly calls. We were messaging, we were sorting things out. So I had, um, so this as well. So it was part of the ocean rowing was part of the Great Pacific Race. So there were supposed to be five other crews who were also doing the same race. So then there was a certain uh, amount of like criteria that we had to had to hit, and a certain number of like certificate so I think there were like six things there was a sea there was like a sea safety survival there was like a first aid some kind of radio operator something or other um and then three others which are escaping me but that was the next piece of the logistics where we didn't even know if it was going to be physically Uh possible um you know in Australia for me to get around and actually get all these courses done in the in a six weeks or we had to do a yacht master theory which is like 40 hours of something and again I had you no ocean I, re- I remember absolutely a grand total of the zero of it pretty much yeah. um luckily we didn't have to use a lot of that, that yeah. knowledge um but yeah so we were sort of talking about all of that and just trying to process through the the logistics before we got out to California okay I don't know why logistics enthrall me so much because it's <laughs> like that on the ground like how did you make it happen yeah um Okay, so let's say you've done what you can, you've gathered, you know, you're ticking boxes left, right and centre and then you fly. Wait, when you're in the plane, I always get so emotional in planes. (laughs) There's something weird that happens in a plane vortex. Like, did you, before you flew out, was there ever like an, oh shit, I'm not going to do this moment? Like, what am I doing? Oh, there were were loads, loads of them. The most severe one that I can remember was, so I had to get a US visa. And I'd flown down to Sydney to get the visa and do one of the other courses, I think. And it was like every fiber of my body was saying, Mm. don't do this. Like it was just saying, if you go out there, you're going to die. And, you know, again, it was sort of like another moment where the, the, you know, decision gates and like having the framing of the decision making really helped me because 
I decided to go in there and get the visa because if I didn't, then it meant the journey was done. Like if I didn't get the visa, I couldn't go. I couldn't even start. Like it was really making a very clear decision uh, about the, you know, the forward progress of of it all. Whereas if I went in there and I got the visa, what I was tricking myself and telling myself was that I could still then decide not to go. Just because I had the visa didn't mean that I still couldn't pull out. So really at that stage, I talked myself into that embassy building (laughs) by force, really just saying, just get it, go in there, have the meeting, get the piece of paper, and you can still decide not to go. But if you decide the other way, then you know, then then basically it, it's all over. Yeah. So that kind of trickery, I suppose, um, it turned out to be a really valuable tool in getting myself to continue, like, almost sort of felt like walking a plank in a sense, yeah. but you're walking towards something very unknown. So that's why it always feels, it always feels scary, no matter what it is. If you've never done it before, it always feels like walking a plank. Yeah. I love though that even I'm, I'm learning off you already, just that idea of you know, turning around on that plank, it's like, I'm, I'm not going back. Like, that's not even an option to go back or to say no. Like, I'm not prepared for this whole thing to be over, but I have to acknowledge that I have very little wiggle room currently. Like, yeah. like I might, I can't take a full step. I yeah. just, it just, it doesn't seem possible, but can I take like a centimeter? Yep. And I feel like that's a really amazing quality to have, like to even hold yourself in that and be like, well, okay, then let's do the centimeter. Yeah. Because some sometimes that's just, all like, you can do. Stuck. Yeah. So I just, I already love, you're yeah, just inspiring like, me. just like breaking it down into yeah because when you do feel overwhelmed and you feel paralyzed if that's all you can do then mm. I think you know you've got to acknowledge that and if it's or even if it's a millimeter like whatever mm. it is it's like you'll basically just take what you know or I'll always just take whatever I can get out of myself in those moments and mm. you've got to give yourself a bit of you know love and appreciation sometimes as mm-hmm. well for those situations that you're throwing yourself into and I imagine that this is like almost like a mini a mini cross ocean paddling thing like just to get the visa or just to get there itself is the journey and you know we talk about being in nature and having these beautiful journeys but like so much of the journey is just getting there absolutely and it's those choices that's really resonating with me what were you calling them gates um yeah decision gates decision gates yeah like there are so many of those and honoring them and yeah, and also I guess celebrating when you do walk through them. Be mm. like, yes, I just did another one. Okay, awesome. High five, yeah, like keep we're going. Another step along the plank. Yeah, because <laughs> I guess it's like the way you've approached even getting there is probably the same way you approached when you were on the ocean, right? When you cannot yep. see the beginning, you cannot see the end. You're in the middle of this big, vast blue ocean and it's just you with some sticks and two people paddling. Like, Yeah, exactly. And those are the ridiculous situations that you end up in sometimes. And yeah, it's like the the other, you know, part of the framing that goes along with the decision gates is um, second tier problems. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, when I was walking down the street in Sydney and I was walking into the embassy, my body was telling me you're about to die. Like and, and a wave is going to crash over you any moment, mm-hmm. like this mammoth wave. But it's like, no, that's a second tier problem, which means it's not something, you know, you're allowed to worry about the problem when it's a first tier problem, when it's happening to you in that moment. So mm-hmm. you're allowed to worry about the wave crashing over you when you're in that situation and the wave is about to crash mm-hmm. over you. Like, sure, go ahead, worry away, cry, do whatever, do mm-hmm. whatever, because you're, you're allowed to. But until you, and actually it's not even a second tier problem, it's like a 45th tier problem with the, uh, the amount of other decisions and things that you have yeah. to go through before you even get in the situation where the wave is, you know, threatening coming over over you. Um, so that framing as well and understanding which, 
consequences, I think, from our decision making, particularly when they scare us, which things are threatening us right now and which things are just possibilities of things Mm. that could happen down the track, but they're not even a guarantee Mm. that then stop you from progressing forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, you, you are totally right that just getting to the boat in the first place was Mm. such a journey and in a sense it kind of became easier once you're in the boat in one sense because you're sort of locked in at that point yeah but yeah getting to the boat it was it was a whole you know lifetime almost yeah I can just see like the little ego gremlin at each one of your like decision gates being like like what if that wave crashes over you and what if you run out of food and what if there's a shark and what if you're just like you're in the middle of like a you know, an urban situation. Totally. And none of that is practical, but it's amazing how our mind will come and it, it knows your weak spot too. It does. Like you must have a fear around big waves. Like yep. that must be a thing. So it's like, oh, I've got just the thing we need to keep her where she is right now. Exactly. And stop this in its track. So <laughs> once again, though, it's amazing though you have that awareness. I feel like that's that must have taken some work to cultivate. Yeah, and, and, and I can't take, you know, total credit for that. A mentor and, and good friend of mine, Aaron Birkby, he was the one who sort of shared that framing with me. So I'm not claiming... It's not my own original, you know, uh, phrasing. Um, I just have found it so useful and, you know, think that that framing can really help a lot of other people as well. Like if we can just simplify our decision making, I think a lot of our life becomes, you know, a little bit simpler and a little bit easier. And also when we're trying to get ourselves to progress forward and Mm. do things we've never done before, we need as many tricks as we can get sometimes. Absolutely. Okay. So you've made it over there. You've said your final goodbyes to people. Who knows what's going to happen? And then you're like in the boat and you're being like, bye. Was there a goodbye party? Were there people like waving you off from the shore? Like, yeah, so we departed. It was like a, I think we were supposed to leave on maybe a Saturday, but then there was this big storm. So then we got delayed for a couple of days. So it was, that was a stressful time. I remember in the lead up. um, So we had a couple of weeks out out in California to prep, but I kept waking up you know, basically, you know, mid, mid nightmare. And the, um, so say with this host family in uh, Monterey Bay, it was gorgeous of them to, you know, open their homes to us. And there was a skylight above my bed, mm-hmm. but I kept waking up in the middle of the night thinking that it was the door to the, to the boat oh, um, and just absolutely freaking out. And I just remember waking up in the middle of the night going like, it's okay. Like you're not on the boat yet, mm. but then you know, and then, but then it got to the stage where it's like, you're no, you boat. are in the, you're, you're in it now. Yeah. And still those same tricks applied though, because it was like, okay, well, the land's still pretty close by. Like, you know, we could turn around if we really wanted to. And it was still just convincing ourselves or for, you know, for me, I can't speak for, for Megan Kaz, but, you know, convincing myself really moment by moment to carry on. And, you know, it was very minuscule steps. Mm. Um, so, you know, I don't think that never that never ended. It never really it never really got to a point where we were like, OK, yep, it's guaranteed now we've got it in the bag. Like even two days before we finished, we were still not counting our chickens before they hatched because yeah. it's like, OK, anything could really happen. We could still get injured, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, though, it just forces you to be very present yeah. and just really take it a little bit at a time. How big is the boat? Seven, about seven and a half meters long. Okay, how many so, feet is that? Like twenty-five. Okay, okay, okay. That's so substantial. It's the side of it is only like thirty centimeters off the water, though. So it's not, it's not tall. Wow. So as soon as you have any amount of white water, like the number of times oh. we got hit and just slammed by waves coming over the deck, and then you're, you know, lying on the deck next to your seat or or whatever was, a, yeah, a lot of a lot of times. 
So there's two of you paddling at all times. You're on three-hour rotations. Now, if I remember correctly, that the doco that inspired you, were, I think they were on two-hour rotations? Yeah, so there was four of them. Yeah. So then, so they did two hours on, two hours off, and they were always in the same pair. So because we were yeah. a crew of three, so it was a rolling shift pattern. So I'd come out and uh, I'd come out to Kaz, so then we'd row our first hour together. Yeah. I'd then row the middle hour on my own, and then Kaz would go back in, and then on my final hour, Meg would come out. Oh, cool. So we had this, unless the weather was really bad, um, so we had two, two-thirds of the time where two of us were rowing and a third of the time where only one of us was rowing, but it was actually really nice to get to have a little bit of alone time. Yeah, and you, do you have berths to sleep in? Yeah, so there's two little cabins. One of the cabins is uh, like the size of a coffin. Like it's just so small and it's just (laughs) ridiculous. Um, The other one's like really the size of a one-man tent. When the weather was really bad, like we did fit all of us in there at one stage, but we were like literally in the fetal position. Whenever one of us moved, we all had to move and we called it – what do we call it? Playing squished piglets or something. Um, so yeah, it's very, very small, really close quarters. And you have to, so we went to the toilet in a bucket and it was like in front of the first rowing seat. So it's like, you're literally going to the toilet, oh. not only with somebody that is like, look, is like, can see you, but like looking into their eyes. So like, as we're <laughs> so, sitting here. Yeah. Like it's like literally exactly like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so that was very, it was very intimate and very confronting. Yeah. I mean, I just just tell me lots of stories. I'm like, what? So you're on the ocean. What what happens? What? Oh, what so the, so some of the the first section for me is really blurry. So it was um, I was really seasick, mm. and so I didn't stop vomiting for 17 days. So it was the what? 17th day before I kept my first like hot meal down, and you know I stopped like pooing my urine was like really dark brown I'm pretty sure I had some kind of like acute kidney injury like had all this stomach pain we were sort of talking with you know medical still rowing through this so yeah still rowing like didn't miss a shift um (laughs) you know you just like row and you vomit over the side so it's like yeah imagine like the worst vomiting and diarrhea basically but then you have to row like you know because I was same time seasickness is like being drunk and hungover at the same time it's it's like you can't really like Put it, you just don't know where you are. It's like a special, it's like a special kind of torture, seasickness. And then to combine that with like sleep deprivation because you're on this three hour thing, like, I feel like this is like Chinese water torture. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. So I think it got to the 12th day. So yeah, we've been out there for nearly two weeks. I've barely eaten anything, barely kept stuff down. And, you know, so I think by that stage, like, I was delirious. I couldn't really stop crying. And, like, I was just sort of telling Kaz and Meg, like, you know, just, just like, ignore me, basically. Like, I just – or ignore my emotions because I got to the stage where I was like, I just can't – I physically cannot control my, like, emotions pretty much. Um, And then that day when I kept that hot meal down, I just remember thinking, like – you know, it's, it's, that it's going to be okay. Like that there's going to be, there's a way, there's a way out of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was sort of the, there was like the first phase was really just seasickness and blurry and painful and awful. And, you know, would be, I wouldn't wish it on, you know, my worst enemy. What were your options of bailing? So there was a safety yacht. Um, it wasn't next to us all the time. So, cause all of the crews, um, and there were two crews that, you know, that bowed out within the first one or two weeks. There was another crew that just didn't even oh, show right. up to the start line at all because yep. we were in this grapes of grace. Yep. So then there were two other, there were us and two other crews that were still out there. But then 
as the race them? continued on, oh, we were like hundreds of miles apart. Yeah, okay. um, so then the safety yacht would rove between us, but then so the safety yacht sometimes would be, you know, days away from where you are. So it's oh. not like they were, you know, they absolutely were not right next to us all the time, <laughs> ready to be there at yeah. our aid if we needed it. They were quite sort of separated. Okay. But if that was the decision that was made... Um, yeah, or you get picked up by a passing ship. So that did happen to one of the crews that they they capsized within the first week, behind, became hypothermic, needed rescuing, their boat got abandoned uh, and they got picked up by a passing ship and then returned ultimately to land. So sort of the code of the ocean that whatever the closest ship is to you yeah. will come to your aid if you need something. So. The old May Day. Yeah. So... In your mind, were you not juggling with this idea of like, at what point, it's it's so interesting because I know we were talking a little bit beforehand about, you know, like trauma that comes up or just the fact that you were in the middle. There's a part of me that's like, wow, you had to push yourself that far to feel certain emotions, like to be sleep deprived, to be physically sick, to be apart from everyone you know and love. Like, just with these two people in the middle of fucking nowhere and then your emotions, so everything's just coming up. At what point are you just re-traumatizing yourself? And... Ooh, yeah, that, wow, that's a good question. Um, I think it was... Well, it was very, it was very different because it was such a... It, it's such a physical experience that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're forced into it, I suppose. And I was... I. I guess in terms of, you know, that re-traumatizing or was it a traumatizing experience? It wasn't. Um, and, you know, I definitely felt like once once that period was complete, it felt like it was over, mm. which is, you know, unlike some of, you know, or the other trauma, I guess, or major trauma that I experienced in my life where, you know, you keep revisiting it and having to relive it, you know, over and over and over again. And it was good that it didn't turn into that. Although, yeah, I'm surprised in some ways that it didn't sort of stick with me more. But, yeah, it was just... This is just what 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 I was in, and there was no there was no way at no point did I ever, or I thought about bailing out, but never ever seriously. I'd never got wow. to the point where I was actually going to call it. The only way that they would have gotten me off that boat was if they had decided that I had to be like medically sure. evacuated. Um, and to be honest, like I wasn't completely truthful with them about some of my like I was having to tell them like my urinary output and my bowel outputs and. You know, basically every, it was having to report back to the medical doctors, like what was coming in and out. And I think I was probably like fibbing about those things a little bit. And maybe if I was totally honest, maybe they wouldn't have let me stay. Um, and looking back now, you know, I think I was very lucky to get out yeah. of that medical situation because I think I was absolutely pushing the the limit of, you know, yeah, I think I was yeah, definitely pushing the limit. Wow. Thanks for admitting that. Because <laughs> it, it is... It is interesting how we do that because I even when I've been on um, adventures sometimes that you know even I think I talk about this in one of the other podcasts but I was hiking with some kids around Morton Island and I had got like a chest infection before we set off and I was like oh I'll just take a couple of days and then I'll walk it out and it'll be fine anyway so I got helicoptered off an island because I was having an asthma attack so bad and it was interesting to you know I was the one one of the people responsible for the kids health and if any of the children had been in the state that I went in I would have immediately got them off but because it was me and I kept almost waiting for somebody else to be like do we go now? Like, or I just, it was 
interesting how I just viewed myself differently yeah. as opposed to caring as if they were a child or one of the other adults that I was completely different. But it's interesting as well that you almost knew that you were in such a state that they would remove you. So then you told little lies. Just yeah, to and stay just sort out of, there. Yeah, so it is. It's fascinating, I think, when it is happening to us that often we can have that, that perception that it's like, oh, well, it's not, it's not bad enough or, yeah. you know, we have all of these narratives and stories about, you know, what it means, um, you know, or, or, you know, I think I, I, th- I definitely would have perceived it as weakness if I decided to, wow. you know, to, to bail out or, you know, whether you phrase it as medically evacuate or whatever it might be. Yeah. But I think even if I was you know medically evacuated and if they had said that I think I still would have viewed it as a as a failure even though it was really out of my effectively out of my control and do you think it's a failure oh like I yeah I think I would have perceived it that way but no there is no way that I ever would have perceived somebody else doing that as a failure you know what I mean like (laughs) you know you have we have special conditions for ourselves sometimes I think that we don't necessarily expect Mm. or apply to others we're so mean to ourselves yeah we really are sometimes a lot of the time okay so the first phase blur spew poo weird eye contact second phase (laughs) so second phase was yeah absolutely after the once the vomiting sort of settled down like I was eating again and it really just felt quite like glorious to be totally honest and it was learning to you know we'd sort of learn how to be with with each other on the boat we'd learn how to you know exist in that small space because effectively it's like um you know what I would imagine sort of being stuck in a jail cell would be like, you know, Mm -hmm. where you're just in this, you know, confined space and you're with other people and you can't get out. Like there's no, you know, you don't get to, you don't get to go to the cinema on the weekend or you don't get to go to a restaurant. You don't get to go out for a drink. You don't get to go for a walk. Like just none of your usual coping mechanisms are are there out there. So it's this bizarre environment, but we'd learnt, you know, by that second phase, how to, I guess, just exist in the environment and I think for me, what really happened in that second phase, like a fascinating, fascinating thing happens at sea because you just don't have, you know, you don't have work, you don't have a phone that you're scrolling on, you don't have, you know, any of these usual, usual things. And I think our regular life, you know, I almost envision it as like if, if it's a bucket of sand and so everything that we see, hear, listen to, everything that happens to us is like you know, sand is getting put into this bucket, like every single little piece of information. So then we've got this giant bucket of sand mm-hmm. from our lifetime of all of these things that have, that have happened because we just have so much information just coming in all mm. of the time. And I felt like out there it was, you know, the, the, the sand wasn't going into the bucket anymore because there was just such minimal input. Like mm. there was just nothing of, of the usual sort of standard. So it was actually a chance and a moment to get to sit there and filter through the the bucket, I suppose, and go through wow. this, you know, like emotional sand, I guess. And then what happened by the last sort of third of the trip was I felt like I had filtered through everything in a sense. And so the last three weeks that I was out there, I had this incredible mental clarity and it felt like you know, like, you know, people talk about like email inbox zero, like getting to, it's like this weird productivity goal that, or yeah. like productivity porn that people have to like get to inbox zero. Yeah. Um, I felt like I'd sort of reached that for my brain yeah. of, you know, just feeling like I'd gotten on top of everything and 
had understood everything and thought through everything and got to, I think, adventure and, you know, that ability to be totally surrounded by nature, it gives you the chance to have a look at who you are without the influence or the lens of anyone else or anything else. And I think it's just such a rare experience to to get to have that I'm very grateful to have gotten to have. So, yeah, that third phase was, yeah, something very special. Did Do you think all three of you girls went through, like had a similar experience in that way? You know what? I'm I'm not sure. Like I'm, st- I'm still in touch with Kaz and Meg. Um, but, no, we've never really like – talked perhaps like in great depth about those phases like I think those phases are really clear to me so no I don't I don't know if they um have that same you know perception or experience but yeah I probably should ask them that actually and I mean when you're on the boat are you are there days that you're not talking to each other is it just eating sleeping rowing repeating like are you laughing what does a day feel like like very very groundhog day but usually at the start of each shift we'd sort of just have a bit of a chat and decide what we'd sort of decide together like what kind of shift do we want to have like do we want to listen to music or do we want to chat do we want to listen to a podcast like we downloaded a load of podcasts a load of like audiobooks Mm. uh to listen to and we'd sort of just yeah decide together at the start of each hour shift like what do we want to do and then you had I guess the beauty when you were on that hour on your own that you could listen to whatever you wanted you could do whatever you well not do whatever you wanted yeah. you were clearly <laughs> rowing but um it felt like a great liberty in that hour to be able to you know have that time to yourself so yeah, yeah and then we had you know certain times of the day like I would usually cook lunch after my you know morning shift finished um, you know, Meg would usually cook the dinner at night time. Kaz would call Stokey, our weather router on the satellite phone in the, at another certain time of the morning. So there were all these different markers of certain times of the day. You had okay. your sunrise, your sunset, um, and then the nights, the nights were weird and they were scary. We didn't have any, we saw no stars for like the first 30 days. It was like what? just cloudy the whole time. We couldn't even believe it. So halfway through when we finally saw stars, we were just elated because we couldn't – I still can't believe that that, that even happened. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the nighttime is just weird, especially in really big swell because Ooh. you are just feeling the boat, you know, like pitching up um, and you don't know what's about to hit you. You don't know what's going to happen. So it's sort of on this really scary like haunted house roller coaster ride for three hours at a time. <sighs> My face is in like shock. <laughs> yeah, like it wow. was a really, it was really, it was really intense. Like particularly those nights. I think the first couple of nights that we were out there, the first times that I was rowing through the night, I just bawled my eyes out the entire yeah. time because I was so scared. So yeah, there were lots of, there were lots of, lots of tough moments. Wow. And what are you eating? Uh, so it was all like, um, you know, freeze dried meal packs, dehydrated meal packs. We had, we'd basically rationed to have three of those meal packs per day, but we only ever got to the stage where we were getting through two a day. Um, And we had like snack packs for every day as well. So we went shopping before we left and we went shopping for something ridiculous, like 90,000 calories worth of snacks. (laughs) We had this certain caloric value that we needed to have, you know, per day for a certain period of time. So I think we were supposed to be eating like four or 5,000 calories a day, but we never got to the stage where we were actually eating that. Kaz and Meg, they were instructed to put on about 10 kilos or so leading up to the trip because, yeah. you know, you do lose a lot of weight. 
um, I had just, you know, accidentally put on that amount of weight, like, because I was just like eating takeout food and, you know, probably drinking too much alcohol, like trying to deal with the the business, like in that mm. lead up. So I was sort of just using food and alcohol as a way to try and de-stress myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, while they purposefully put on weight, I had just accidentally <laughs> ended up in the same boat. Um, yeah. And so I was 80 kilos when I left and I was like 64 and a half when I got to land. So it wow. took an epic toll. How how did your body show up for you every day? Like, uh, yeah, like, do you get sore arms? Is that a stupid question? Do you have blisters on your butt? Like, yeah, like all sorts of different things. Like, you know, you get like hit with oars. Like we always had different oh. bruises. Like, because as soon as the, you know, you've got these like giant wooden things in your hands yeah. and then like, because the, and then the water's like pitching up and down. So then yeah. the oars going up and down. So we're like getting hit all the time. Um. Oh, like, you know, you get you even get hit in the face, like hit in the head with an oar. You get swept off your seat. You, like, hit the deck. But you're attached to the boat at you, all times. Yeah, like, we oh, had, like, a, yeah. Um, and so what else happened? So there's also a phenomenon called pizza butt. So that's basically where you get these, like, you know, infections on your on your butt or you uh-huh. get these big, like, you know, pimples. And um, But because you can't see your own butt, you don't know how bad they are or how at risk you are for getting a serious infection. So we would dack ourselves every, you know, couple of days in front of each other and we'd sort of give each other an assessment of Uh the skin on our butt. Because, yeah, that was one of the big things. You've really had to look after it because our butts aren't really – they're not really made for sitting on all the time. And let alone they're really not made for the amount of, like, the salt crystals if you you get the chance to dry. So not only that, like – but, you know, you're getting drenched with salt water all the time. And then if you do dry, the salt crystals become really sharp. Oh, like sandpaper. Um, yeah. So it's sort of all of these compounding, you know, factors. And our skin doesn't really respond that well to salt water for an extended period of time. So, yeah, we got to know each other. And then so you sleep with your bum. We'd After we finished the shift, we'd, you know, use the water wipes like to, to basically clean our butts yeah. um, and get rid of the salt cover ourselves with like pseudo creme like little babies and then you'd sleep with your butt sticking out with your bare butt like sticking out of your sleeping bag yeah because it was the only chance that your butt actually had that the skin on your butt had to get dry because the rest of the time it's just wet all the time so it's like as soon as you open the cabin door you just see like butts (laughs) did you guys ever get infected from them no we we were lucky and we looked after ourselves well we didn't get any infections i know one of the guys on the other crews did and um yeah he had to be on antibiotics and he could only be in like side lying for a couple of days and you can't row anymore like if you get an infection kind of infection yeah i don't know exactly what it is but yeah like once you've got it you can't keep sitting on it and rowing on it because it's just gets gets worse yeah did you come out looking like the hulk (laughs) <laughs> I like so I don't build muscle very easily yeah. like I'm a fairly like floppy p- person I guess you could say um even though there are other people that they like build muscle like yeah. I've got a friend of mine that as soon as she goes to the gym and does like four squats like she's like busting out of her pants like <laughs> yeah. um so I'm definitely not like that I remember I had I felt like I had guns at about the three week mark and then by week five I think they were gone again just because our bodies were like eating eating ourselves had no butt at all um like my whole body sort of changed shape yeah. really and because you're not standing or walking you yeah you're uh, like my butt just disappeared and then so at the end of the the row I could row for 12 hours a day but I literally couldn't walk like 500 meters when I got back to land like because you just have not stood you have not walked in months effectively yeah. so that was um 
that was a big thing and my legs would go to sleep all the time and it's still something that I struggle with now and it's like three years later that my legs fall asleep if I sit down on a hard surface for too long yeah you got muscle memory (laughs) yeah yeah they're like we remember this wow okay so you just you're living this crazy simple beautiful lifestyle like just I mean there'd be a handful of people like you said all over the world who have ever done something like this and obviously it's an incredible physical journey not only to get there but to be executing it to be taking care of your body in that situation and you've got this journey going along in your mind where you say by the third phase it was like you know nirvana I imagine you're just clear and you're open and it's like did anything else happen like is it I don't, it just seems almost seems so far fetched from what we do every day that yeah what is it that you now take away from it like are you still learning from it are you yeah like oh there's so many things and it does continue to it yeah it does it keeps it keeps evolving as time goes on as do like you know all of our memories and all of our past like yeah. you know they can always take on new meaning I think but it was definitely, it was a big adjustment getting back to land. Like I remember the overwhelm of turning my phone back on again and yeah. just going like, oh my God, the the amount that we're just bombarded all the time. And mm-hmm. I think I looked at it and then I had to turn it back off again because it was just so overwhelming. I've got this theory, which is, you know, the amount of time that you spend on a on an adventure or the amount of time you spend on a journey will, you know, will equate to the amount of like mental clarity almost that you get when you get back. So if we were out there for two months, I feel like I got about two months of really good mental clarity when I got back, um, you know, before you're almost it's, – it's something that you always need to top up. Like I don't mm. think th- staying in that place of mental clarity, like it's not – I don't really think that it's that realistic or achievable. I think sure. it's something – it's just the same as like filling your car up with petrol that when you're, you know, when we're driving our cars around, when we're, when we're, you know, going about our day-to-day life, you know, the petrol will run out and it will go down and we need mm. to make sure that we have ways to be able to, you know, replenish our, our stores and adventure is definitely one of the ways that I do that. Yeah. So it was never going to be like, I think sometimes we go on adventures, I've definitely been guilty of this before and wanting it to be like a cure or wanting it to be a fix. And I think it can be those things, but there's always going to be more things that we need to do. Like there's like a maintenance process almost. Yeah. When, when you guys were like at the end, was it just like when you guys are a couple of days out or you, you know, when you can see land (laughs) for the first time, like what was that like? Oh, it was pretty incredible. I think the, I think when we first saw land, we spent like three hours trying to figure out, we're like, is it just a really dark cloud or is it land? Because we didn't want to get too excited too quickly. Um, it was, the ending was really bittersweet. It huh. was, I was so excited to get to land because it was, it was such a difficult journey and just to get to the end of that physical aspect. But at the same time, you know that it's a moment in time that's ending that you will never, ever, ever get back. Mm. And I was remember being very aware of that at the time that, you know, I'd spent probably a lot of the journey wishing for it to be over or, you know, just sort of sitting in the difficulty of it. And then all of a sudden, when you get close to the end, you can look back and and understand perhaps the beauty of it as well. Yeah. So uh, it was really, yeah, it's like the definition to me of bittersweet. Wow. Yeah. 
And when you're, I mean, was there a welcoming party there for you? Yeah, so my, my parents flew out, Kat was out there, I had a couple of other friends who flew out that I didn't know they were going to be uh-huh. out there. And um, so there's this, this thing that they, they call it the thousand mile stare, which basically happens to anyone that's been at sea for, for any length of time, where you're almost just, because you're so used to focusing on the horizon that you just almost like look through people, like, and you're just, your eyes are just like unfocused and Kat always says like you know that when she saw me for the first time that she just looked at my face and she was like oh my god like what has almost like what has happened to you I think she saw my face and this thousand mile stare and just wondered if I was could ever be the same yeah that that if I was was I broken was I like that you know clearly we'd been through a lot yeah and yeah literally like my entire body was different like everything was different and so I think that was uh, quite, I think it was almost a bit scary for her in that yeah. moment of going, you know, you've, you've left as this one person and then who are you going to come back as? Which I did mm-hmm. also, I still came back as me, yeah. but I think that was a, a weird moment for them to yeah. see us and equally a weird moment for us to see them. It was almost like our little bubble was getting invaded. Like yeah. we'd had this, you know, I want to say this perfect little life, which it wasn't perfect, but I th- at that moment, it felt like we were in this perfect little bubble and yeah. then all of a sudden it was getting pierced by the outside world and that was really weird and almost like I didn't really want for that to happen. Yeah. It's, it's those weird complexities of life, isn't it? Where you can go from doing a Vipassana for 10 days and be all like yeah. so at peace and like with nature and just and then kind of want to go back to the real world. And then when you're there, you're like, this is kind of fucked and you want to go back to the quiet one. And But it's yeah. like you want to be a part of both, but part of neither. And yeah, just weaving in and out of those. And so you've come back, you've made it, you've done it. And then that those things that you were running away from (laughs) like what happened oh yeah that's a good question so I knew at the end of the row you know in that period of clarity I knew that it was time to move on from that business um so that was something that I sort of initiated when I got back so so in the end I ended up selling that business it took another surprise to you like if you had told that to past you before you'd gotten on the boat that like hey you're going to get to the end of this trip and realize you're going to sell the business would you have been shocked no I wouldn't have been like because yeah it was just uh, yeah that entire process was just really difficult and really challenging and I know now why it was so difficult and challenging um you know and the, the the background I guess which again it was not I couldn't recognize it at the time but I know it now was that so I was had undiagnosed PTSD mm-hmm. um, and there were a lot of things that were triggering me within the environment of starting that business, oh. which had never been an issue for me before. And so I was experiencing this, you know, huge amount of emotions and these, you know, yeah, really just having a lot of difficulty functioning. And I put it all down to the fact that I was the world's worst business owner or the world's worst entrepreneur um and you know everybody always says that starting a business is really hard so I think I I really was putting my experiences and my emotions down to that but it was actually not that was was not why I was having the difficulty so for me the 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 things that I now know are true you know, and, and and I guess to give it context, I need to sort of state what the what the trauma was. Um, so when I was eighteen, I was raped by two men, and at the time, I you know went back to uni the next day. It was 
you know, I, I had a conversation with a friend about it after it happened, but really just put it far, far, far down and far, far away. Mm-hmm. And I remember almost thinking that it was weird at the time that it didn't like I remember sort of thinking that I should have had a bigger response to it than what I than what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it was just my brain buried it so far away. And it just because it just wasn't capable, it wasn't ready, it wasn't able to, to deal with, with it pretty did much. Did you tell anyone else? I told there was yeah I told a friend at the time like basically it was straight away you know after it happened and really we just weren't I I know that I probably wasn't ready to to deal with it uh but also we were both really young and naive and I don't think we understood you know perhaps I don't actually think that we understood how bad it was and I don't think we understood perhaps I don't think we had any understanding of maybe the options that were available to us. Um, mm. You know, really, like I still sort of almost classify myself not not as a not as a little kid, but I was very young still. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what had ended up happening? So I put you know put that put it put it all away, and you know hadn't 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 dealt with that trauma at all. Like really, just buried it. So then what had happened was, you know, and, and my career was as a physiotherapist. So in my job or the previous jobs that I'd have had until I started the business, the men, I guess, that I was interacting with, they were usually patients of mine. It was in a hospital setting. They were unwell. So they weren't really ever in positions of power. <laughs> and that changed when I started the business because it was a very male dominated environment. Um, you know, we were pitching to people for, for funding and there were p- other people that were in certain positions of power that had an influence over how well the business was going and or you know influence the opportunities I guess that we had access to so what ended up happening was you know when I was in these closed door meetings with you know Mm. men that I perceived to be in more powerful positions it was triggering this previous Mm. trauma and you know I would be in meetings and I would just you know freeze and not you know just really struggle to get my words out Mm. and have these really big overwhelming emotional responses or like you know cry for days at a time or have trouble getting out of bed and just really it's like the the core thing I think is just I could I just could never calm down properly I was just in this constant state of being system is peaking yeah all the time um and you know and I just kept getting triggered in that way like over and over and over and over and over Mm. again but because there'd been so much other change in my life I couldn't put two and two together mm. that that was what was happening and I know since like there's a fantastic book um which is the body keeps the score like mm. about trauma and you know and, and it talks in there about the fact that when you are triggered it literally shuts down like you know the left hand side of your brain you can't make good decisions you know and that cognitive aspect is is shut down so even mm. when you're experiencing these heavy emotions like your brain is incapable a lot of the time of making the connection between what mm-hmm. has caused this to happen so that was the background, I guess, in terms of going on the road that I was, you know, I think to me that my subconscious knew that if you're on a boat with two women, it's, you know, you're, you're going to be fine out there. This isn't going to, there are no triggers for you out there. There are none of these things don't exist out there. And they didn't. And I wasn't triggered out there. Not in that way. There was a lot of other, you know, emotional (laughs) things that happened, but that wasn't a component. So I think I was just so grateful to have, the separation and the space from that, which I'd been struggling with so much, yeah. you know, for the 18 months or, or two years before that, that was a, such a relief. And 
so yeah, I, I knew that I needed to leave the business. Um, I think that was the right business decision, even regardless of the, the triggers and regardless of the PTSD. And then I eventually got the help that I sort of needed for that. But yeah, it's been a long journey trying to figure it all out and put all the pieces together. Like it takes a it, it's it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's so incredible to think of, yeah, that experience that you had. And then when you find yourself in the middle of nowhere with two women in a very intimate situation, like I can almost just imagine all the healing that would have taken place because it is so vulnerable. Like not only is your boat in the middle of nowhere, but you don't have anywhere to hide from these women. And when I've journeyed as well is there's a lot of sisterhood wounding wounding as well. So to even connect with women like that and for it to be a safe environment because if you guys are literally dacking yourselves every day in front of each other and neither of you are hurting each other and you're building that trust and you're building the safety of like, you know, sometimes... And because I see this in the adventurous people around me sometimes that I, they seem to put themselves in such extreme situations and I often don't understand why. Yeah. Like, well, why Why do you feel the need to do that and I don't? Like what is happening? And just to honour that, you know, this is all a part of our healing and we do recreate yeah. things in, in amazing ways to try and gain the healing that we need. And I think so much of that comes, especially when you do it in nature. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah, and it's so well documented, you know, or, you know, it's well documented. I think that there can still be, there's still a lot more research to be yeah. done around the healing, you know, properties of nature and the outdoors. But, you know, yeah, that, the, I think it's just the, the space sometimes. I think the mm. biggest thing that, that nature gave to me in that setting was it was the, yeah, it was quite literally a safe space, although it wasn't really a physically safe space because we were literally at risk of dying some Mm. of the time. But in that other sense, in terms of being in an environment where I was separate from the trauma that I'd experienced Mm. and I was in a situation where my body could finally just calm down a little bit, that it was the blows true my gift. Mind, though that you're like my body could calm down, yet you were paddling for twelve hours a day. Like it's, yeah, it's, and this is the this is the insane thing, right? That you know people and you know when people would ask this question, like you know I, I've only started talking about you know the, the the trauma and the experience and the PTSD, you know publicly in the last few months, um, and there's only few people I guess that I've really been speaking about it with before. But you know this is this is one of the aspects of it that I think when we've when we've been through these things, sometimes our other experiences and whether that is rowing across an ocean or whether it's any sorts of, you know, these these difficult situations we might put ourselves in, to the outside world, you know, they might have thought that the ocean rowing is the most difficult thing that I'd ever done or that I'd experienced, mm-hmm. but in it in no way was the, was the most difficult thing like that the original trauma that was the most difficult thing the PTSD that was the the mm. more difficult there were so many other things i think that actually both you know forced me into that situation or that i forced myself into it to get the relief and the help and the healing that i needed but at the mm. same time it gives you the strength to be able to do things that you never thought were were possible mm. before and there's a great saying it's by um James Gordon, is he MD or PhD? I can't remember. Anyway, he's got an incredible book as well. And, you know, he says, well, we cannot choose, you know, while we did not choose the trauma, we cannot, uh, I'll start it again. While we did not choose the trauma, we can choose to rewrite the ending. Mm. And I think, of course, you know, so much of the time we wouldn't ever choose for it to happen again if mm. we could. If we could, however, the fact of the matter is, it has happened mm. and it is part of us. 
And if there is a way that we can, you know, turn it into some kind of positive or take strength from it, then absolutely we should be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, and there's been a lot of shame to work through and a a lot of different things to work through, but it's good, I guess, to get to the point now to be able to recognize the strength that it took to get through those experiences. And yeah, I think the row is, is, is an outcome and a point of healing and yeah, it's a really complex, Mm. it's a complex picture. I love though that that you're at least willing to invite this because I feel like when we are in the outdoors and out in nature, it is such a beautiful canvas for us to be able to connect on these things and to be cultivating enough safety within ourselves to for you to talk about it openly. Like even to use the word rape now, sometimes we're not, you know, there's still yeah. this kind of weirdness. It's like, well, it fucking happens. Yeah. So let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, I couldn't even say the word probably yeah. like. I'd say a year ago, definitely 18 months ago, could not say the word without, you know, without crying, without being overcome. I think I typed it for the first time on Twitter maybe like three months ago when I was wow. started tweeting voraciously about, you know, when everything has started happening in our, or coming out more publicly in our sort of political landscape and things. So, yeah, it's definitely like even taking back the power of the language I think is huge Like, there's so many aspects. Mm. Yeah, and that idea of what we're actually afraid of kind of sometimes I tell people that I go on solo hikes, like I'll go on a solo overnight hike and people are like, aren't you scared? Aren't you afraid? Aren't you all of this? And it's like, well, no, like I'm just not because usually, actually, when I think of the things that I'm afraid of, it's not a tree falling on me. It's like some, some actually, my worst fear that, well, that I've been told is a man basically coming and attacking me. That's yeah. what I've been taught to feel when I'm out there all alone as a woman. Yeah. But really, when I'm out there in nature, I actually feel so supported by Mother Earth. Yeah. Like I just, you know, even if it does rain a lot, there's always a big tree to stand under. Or yeah. if, like there's always a way kind of out or that you're being supported in another way. And I guess it's those metaphors that I take from when I'm in nature and now when I'm in suburban kind of environments, it was like, hang on, what would nature do right now? Like there must be some, like I'm so supported here, even in very challenging times. How can I work this? So I think it's, yeah, I mean, to me, it's the level of depth that we're willing to have these conversations, especially yeah. while being out in nature. Like, that feels like the best of both worlds to me. Like, and it, I remember it, um, you know, it was something that, that people said to me. Like, I did a solo cycling trip across Europe in, like, 2015 or something, and people we'll were like, oh. save that for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, to try and figure out, like, a career change. But people said, oh, yeah, I'd never done anything anything like that before. And people were like, oh, but, you know, you're, you, but you might get murdered or, you know, you might get raped or, you know, and they would say these things to you and it's – and again, I didn't have this – I didn't have the strength of the time or I didn't have – no, strength is the wrong word. I didn't, yeah, have the words at the time to be able to come back to them in the moment when those conversations were happening. But if they were saying those things to me now, it would be like, well, it's – for one, it's it's already happened. And so why would I decrease my ability to experience mm. the world? Why should I hide? Why should I be the one to limit myself? Um, you know, when, when these things – <laughs> you know they can they can happen and they do happen and Mm. it's actually it's unlikely for it to happen in nature Mm. but yet I hate this you know conditioning that we have from society which is that we should stay inside that we should keep ourselves Mm. safe that we need to to modify and not push the boundaries and not push the limits when Mm. I think 
to me, getting women outside in nature, whether it's alone or whether it's in a group, no mm-hmm. matter what it is, I think this is a way of reclaiming, you know, power and strength. And I just mm-hmm. hate the way that those, those, you know, threats are sort of used against us. Yeah. And it's, I'm sick of us having to be the ones of, of modifying our behavior when it needs to be, you know, the perpetrators of these acts. They, they need to be the ones to yeah. modify. They need to be the ones that change. And I think that women in particular, we need to reclaim nature as the safe space that it is. Yeah, it's like stop making making nature the bad guy. Yeah. Because it's not. You keep saying that I should fear nature when it's actually like the things that, that I hold fear around are already here. And the fact is when I go into nature, I'm choosing to look those things in the face. Yeah. I'm choosing to go, I know what could happen out there and I'm choosing to look at that and be conscious about it as opposed to pretending like it's not there yep. when I live in my suburban home. Yep. Like, whoa. Yeah, fired up now. Uh, I'm I'm with you. Political podcast. I'm with you. I'm with you. But yeah, we've got. You know, I think we've made a lot of good progress. We've Mm. got a long way to go as well. Um, But yeah, it's a conversation that I have frequently with with friends about. You know, just that that real fear mongering piece about going alone into nature. And of course, there is some tiny, small chance that yeah, maybe you'll come across a, a murderer, but. You know, surely that that chance is pretty slim. It's like the the thing that I don't get is when we get in cars every day and, you know, Mm -hmm. we drive on the motorway at like 100 kilometres an hour and, you know, that that we perceive, we do not perceive the risk, say, in driving a car, yet all of a sudden when you want to go, yeah, on on a hike alone or an overnight camping trip or something like that, all of a sudden it's just the most risky, insane thing Mm. to do. Yet so many women have already suffered through those experiences before or suffered mm. the consequences and they more often than not actually happen in our own homes and our own streets mm. and happen and people we know and exactly yeah. like you know that's the reality of the situation so yeah, yeah no, oh. i found being in nature is just so healing because you take away so much of the bullshit yeah like your phone like i mean and all these the phone itself is not good or bad it's obviously our relationship yeah. to it but to be out there and just that peace and quiet like i cannot it has healed helped support me heal so much within myself yeah and just that i am not separate from nature like in a lot of indigenous cultures they don't even have a word for nature because it's like <laughs> it just, well it, we, it is yeah. and we are we are it it is us and that has been one of the things that the deeper my spiritual practice goes, the more I start to see how I am connected to the trees or in some books they even call it the green-blooded people. And just like, oh, and then I start to move through and look at things so differently. So anyway, that's like a whole other podcast. (laughs) Once again came up was, so I was hearing there was a little bit of pattern that you would go on what I deem rather intense, extreme physical adventures um, looking for clarity for something, whether yeah. it's conscious or unconscious. Is that happening again? Is there is there any seeds planted or yeah. adventures oh, like brewing? I'm, I'm always on the search for more clarity. Like yeah. I feel like I have so much more clarity now than I did a few years ago, but, yeah. you know, I don't think that that quest will ever, ever end, nor is it a... <laughs> You know, I sort of go in and out of the thinking of, you know, you're like, oh, if I can just get to this next milestone or figure out this particular thing, then I will have arrived. And I still fall back into that thinking sometimes, even though I know that that doesn't exist. There is no point at which we have ever arrived and we are complete and we are finished. Um, But, you know, yet sometimes I still want to go back into that way of thinking. But the next... um Oh, the next event. I don't know. How, how long have you got? There are too many. One of the big things that, that's on my, I guess, bucket list still, or one of the experiences that I really desire to have is to go on a multi-month hike. So at least, you know, two months, I'd love to do, you know, the Appalachian Trail or Pacific Crest Trail, like, you know, some of those, the big ones over in the US. However, international travel is not really, mm. you know, happening, not going to happen for a little while. But just to have that um, 
ongoing connection to nature and to be grounded like with with my feet on the ground I suppose because I did that I did the cycling trip but then that was still very much like still Mm. in and out of towns like I'd still be stopping for you know coffees and eating croissants and you know all sorts of things so it was still it was an incredible experience in nature but it wasn't fully immersive perhaps because Mm. I was still on roads a lot I think what I desire from the next journey which I definitely had on the road was to be a completely Mm -hmm. surrounded and immersed in nature but it's still very different being on the water Mm. so what I want now is to almost emulate the being totally immersed in nature but but be grounded on earth so Mm -hmm. it's sort of I want to feel what the difference is like to be what about New Zealand Oh, yeah. Like, oh, it's like, God, send me anywhere to do anything and I would just say yes. Okay. So I'm basically just planning our next adventure. I just jumped <laughs> on board and I'm coming yeah, we, with we're you. Going, we're going. We're leaving right now. Well, the fun thing is, I don't know if you've heard, but I've done um, sections of the Bicentennial National Trail. Which oh, goes really? Which yeah. town to basically to Melbourne. Yeah. And I've just done the, the northern kind of sections. Um, but, yeah, there is something about the simplicity of, like, waking up every day, packing up your home, putting it on your back. And it yeah. kind of feels like a hug after a while and then just one foot in front of the other. Yeah, it's I like mean, every day crazy. Is- the same but every day is different like that's one of the most beautiful things I think about those sorts of adventures Mm -hmm. and it is it's just that grounding experience and yeah you appreciate everything so much more Mm -hmm. so and life almost makes more sense I mean don't get me wrong I think you know both Laura and I went kind of crazy but like you know it's that thing of like well I wonder if I had my level of awareness that I have now and then did that trip again like how I would do it differently um but yeah, New Zealand, I think, could be good. Yeah, It is a bit of a shame that Australia doesn't seem to have a lot of big supported trails like they have in America. What about the Larapinta Trail? Have you done that? Oh, I would love to. Yeah, that's on the list as well. Okay. Um, Cam I went down. We did the three. <laughs> that's a, That would be an interesting aspect of the challenge, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. and then and a nice extra piece of connection. Very good. We did the three capes track earlier in the year, but, you know, that's only, uh, uh, you know, fairly short but it was still just so beautiful like those sea cliffs down there Mm. in Tassie like oh they're just something else so even just and you know that's that's the thing for me ultimately is like if you can get away for you know two months or three months amazing but at the same time if you can only get away for three days or you can only get away for one night then that's what we need to what we need to take Mm -hmm. um and I don't know. I think the, the single overnight things can be just as impactful and just as meaningful as mu- mm. mu- multi-month things. Like there's nothing that's, you know, better or worse than any any mm. other kind of, you know, journey or any particular mode of transport even. Uh, I just like the aspect of it being human powered. Like anything that's mm. using our own, you know, muscle and the, the earth to get from A to B without a motor or everything and anything in that realm appeals to me. Yeah. I'm not letting go of you. <laughs> like, We're connected forever. Oh my God. <laughs> well, so if you're listening to this podcast and you can, you know of a trail that you think Eleanor should do, please write in oh, um, so we can inspire her to do that. Um, I w- do you have a way that people can follow you, find out more if they want to or so stalk I, you? Twitter is probably my most active oh, social media. I'm uh, at Eleanor Carey. I have Instagram as well, which is at Eleanor J. Carey, but I'm sort of a bit sporadic on the old Insta. So you're more words than pictures? Yeah, more words than pictures. Okay. Um, I would love to be more in the pictures, but I just need to spend some more time sort of developing that side. But yeah, for whatever reason, I just, I do like the, I do like the words. Even if you um, wrote on tiles, not you, need, you don't need business advice, but like wrote on the <laughs> tile and then put the tile on Instagram. Of, I actually, so I on my Instagram, that. if people want to go back to get a snapshot of the row, I actually posted up, I did a... Um, I think it was, was it one year after? Yeah, it must have been a year afterwards. 
I posted up all of my diary entries, like so each day um, oh with some, you know, videos and photos. But yeah, I just kept it in in the notes app on my phone. I did keep a, a record of the the journey, and I posted that all up in a in a sixty two day block. Um, a year after the the row was done so there is a little time capsule sitting on Instagram for the row and there's all sorts of interesting little you know tidbits in there oh my god I'm so excited (laughs) um okay so Instagram uh tweeting you love to tweet and I'm trying to think if there's so there's anywhere else oh so and I, ha- so I do have a website so eleanorcary.com <laughs> and if um yeah because I do you know my most recent uh keynote that I've been doing so I just spoke at a conference in Adelaide I think that was two weeks ago at the Southside conference on post-traumatic growth so engineering opportunity through adversity and just that process of understanding when trauma has impacted us and is impairing us on a longer term basis Mm -hmm. how do we recognize that how do we get help for ourselves to recover from that point um because i know for me i couldn't even i had so much difficulty even recognizing that impairment at the time yet Mm. now looking back it is so very clear and i guess it's my you know mission at the moment is to get that message out to as many people as possible Mm. because if we can help people understand the trauma that they've been through understand if they're living with an impairment ongoingly give people hope that there is actually a way to you know to to get to get back perhaps what they have lost to feel happier to feel more peaceful to just Mm. deal with whatever it is you know whatever words I think resonate with people but the first step in getting any kind of healing I think is first understanding that we're in some sort of pain or that we are Mm -hmm. affected and that there's no trauma that is I I had such a complex with thinking that what happened to me wasn't wasn't bad enough perhaps to warrant you know needing help or getting help or that it Mm. wasn't that it shouldn't have caused the symptoms and effects in me of what it did or Mm. even with that with that big delay and that seems to be a really common thread that I've heard in other people as well that they think what has happened to me surely isn't isn't bad enough or I'm not a war veteran or I'm not this or I'm not that so therefore you know it it shouldn't be something that I have to worry about dealing with or Mm. that I shouldn't you know so I think that we have a lot of complex narratives around trauma and around recognizing those impairments that I really want to shed some light on that mm. uh, I've fought through a lot of those things for the last five years and tried to, to solve a lot of them. And I'm really keen to be able to try and, you know, help some other people along their journey of recognizing impairment and, and hopefully getting some help for it. So, mm. yeah, oh, anyway, we, I feel like we could talk for, for <laughs> forever about all these things. But <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm a I'm my current belief is that everyone has trauma too, yeah. like of all different shapes, sizes and degrees. But one of the, the ways in which you can identify it is if essentially you're living a life and you don't know why you're reacting to certain ways or you don't know why you can't seem to create things in your life that you yeah. really wish you could, whether that be because you feel numb or because you just lack enthusiasm or, you know, it might seem quite mild, but it's, it's stemming from something else and that there's always another way in which you can approach it and learn more about yourself and you know, there's always hope, Yeah, I guess, is yeah. the thing. And, yeah, I'm just so grateful that you shared your experience about that because I think it really is the most important and powerful aspect of people just sh- being so vulnerable and sharing their own experience mm. and whether that be in your day-to-day life or when you literally go open sea, like, rowing. <laughs> like, it's both... Both are incredibly inspiring. So thank you so much. And 
I'm going to get you on another podcast episode, I think. So anyways. <laughs> oh, and thank you for having me here. It's just, yeah, it's amazing to have the, the opportunity to even be able to, to chat about it and speak about it. So yeah, thank you for, for creating the space. Oh, any day, <laughs> any day. Thank you so much, listeners. Um, as always, if you want to join a, a Journey Outdoors in Nature adventure, you can go to their website because they've always got paddling adventures or potentially walking ones. Or just if you're looking for some inspiration, then jump on and follow Eleanor as well for some cool ideas and reach out as well to her if her story resonated with you and is supporting you on your journey. And of course, if you like this podcast and you want to come on, let me know and I can come over to your house and drink your peppermint tea too. So... <laughs> Thanks so much, guys, and have an amazing day.